Pray with me. Father God, what a great what a great song of encouragement, what a great song of hope, what a great song of truth that we have a home and it's not here. We have a much better place. A much better place where we'll make a a home with you for eternity. So we thank you for that promise. Uh, Teach us today, Father, a little more about how to live in response to that truth, Uh, in response to the glorious uh, good news, the gospel that you give us. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Good morning. morning. Oh, come on. I'm going home if that's all you got. Good morning. There we go. Man, that scares me, scares me. Now, it's great to be here today. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians, uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible. And today, we're going to put a wrap on chapter 3 as we prepare next week to launch us into a study of chapter 4, which is the the joy section of Philippians. So look forward to that with me. Over the last two weeks, I love the way Ryan has kind of set this up today as he's taught the rest of chapter 3 to us. First, by pointing out that grace prepares a resume for heaven for us. In other words, grace provides all that we need in terms of what it qualifies us to stand before God someday and enter heaven and enjoy His presence forever. The key tagline I took away from the sermon was, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That Jesus Christ, His grace, what He did on the cross, plus nothing actually equals everything that we need to qualify us. Nothing of our good works kind of beefs up the resume. It's all about Christ. Last week, the tagline that I remember was, we need to therefore, in response to grace, be living in a lifestyle that is always focused forward. It's always focused to becoming more of the person that Christ has purchased us to be. The line I remember was, we are to live looking forward past your past. Today, though, we're going to talk about, does everybody like this idea of grace? Because you would think so. I mean, what kind of, what, what's not to like about grace? What's not to like about the cross and about what Christ did on the cross? But today we're going we're gonna to study a passage that's going to actually warn us to beware of the enemies of the cross. And we're going to learn that these enemies are not so much outside enemies. They may come from the outside, but often they are even inside enemies within the faith. And I put that in quotes. There are sometimes people that are false teachers within the church that in reality look good, sound good in a lot of ways, but actually we're going to see are actually kind of like the, sheep, uh, the, uh, the wolf in sheep's clothing. So how do you spot that? How do you, are you aware of that? And if so, how do, we, how do we heighten our awareness so that we're not tricked by some of these other Gospels that we're going to see today? So listen to the Word of God. Let me read it, and then we'll uh, come back and begin to expound and take apart the passage. But let's read the Word of God together. Uh, can you permit me to kind of change it up a little bit today and practice something? I saw Matt Carlson do a few months back, and 
he said, you know, kind of in honor of this is God's word, we don't do this every week, but would you just stand with me and really listen? If you have a Bible, you can follow along as I read God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen. Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example, Paul says. Observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have seen in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and I now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship, we're to be different, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Amen? Amen? Amen. Be seated. This passage contains three sections that are going to flow together. Number one, be careful who you follow. You can't help but follow Christ, but you also follow people. We follow teachers. We listen to teachers. We have favorite teachers. And and even more so today in our culture today because, you know, back in Paul's day, then the Philippians had to be careful because there were certain different teachers in this uh, small town of Philippi that, that they might be exposed to, including Paul when he came through town or other traveling teachers. Be careful who you follow, who you listen to. Today, there are countless voices. Because we can go online, go on the internet, go on the blogs. You can tune into all kinds of different people telling you what they say is the truth. Be careful who you follow. Number two, beware because some of the, and I would put this in my outline if you want to correct my outline, add two quotes around the phrase friends of faith. Some supposed, quote, friends of faith are actually enemies of the cross. In other words, not all the attacks come from outside the church. Sometimes the danger is actually right within the church, right within the body of Christ. Beware that some, quote, friends of faith are actually enemies of the cross. And then thirdly, we're going to end on an up note, rejoice, because grace is going to promise you, here's my definition of verse 2021, a now, wow, wonder-filled eternity. We're going to take a look at what that is. So let's start with the first section when he says, be careful who you follow. We just read it. Brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. That word observe them actually is a a Greek word that doesn't mean just kind of casually watch, but it means to take aim uh, and uh, take aim, focus on them. Really pay attention to them is the idea. Set your focus on those who are walking, meaning living the Christian life, teaching about the Christian life, according to the the pattern that you've learned from us. He says, make sure you stay in that. 
This same type warning, because he says in verse 18, there are many that are outside of that pattern, that are enemies of the cross. We'll come to that in a minute. But this big theme of being careful who you follow is, is, is reinforced in Galatians in this very powerful verse. I want to jump to Galatians just long enough to read it to you. I'll give it to you on the screen. I am amazed, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him, that is Jesus, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. It's really not another gospel because it's like if it's a different gospel, how can you call it the gospel? Because gospel means what? Good news. So, yeah, it's a different gospel. In other words, it's not the gospel. It's really not. It's really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. Notice it does not say who want to deny the gospel of Christ, but distort the gospel of Christ. This is not about teaching that denies the gospel. It's teaching that ends up disarming the gospel by distorting the gospel, by subtly changing it in little ways. So the question it raises in my mind is how do we be careful who you follow? you want to be careful who you follow let me give you four very quick tips that i've learned over the years that can help us apply this number one make sure there is honesty about sin the first warning i see in in false gospels or teachers that are a little bit out of whack and and dangerous to listen to is they often are dishonest about sin make sure there's honesty about sin what do i mean by that what i mean by that is it's hard to have good news without having bad news it's hard to be saved if you're never lost it's hard to be rescued if you don't need to be found, okay? The reality is the scriptures clearly teach that the penalty for sin is death, separation from God, and, and, and eternal punishment in hell. And those things are true. It's a result of sin. That God is love, but God is a lot more than love. God is also holy. God is also just. And as a holy, just God who will someday judge us, you know, Jesus was very clear about the fact that we need to come to him if we want to have life. He told that to highly religious people who studied the word of God and memorized it and, and did all kinds of rituals to try to always obey it. And, and he said, the problem is you still need to be forgiven of your sins. In other words, you need to be honest about sin. There's a lot of false teaching that begins to really uh, downplay sin after all if god is love and if christ died for our sins on the cross then who really cares about sin make sure there's honesty about sin number two make sure there's a an emphasis on grace every false religion in the world is based on a works-based performance oriented approach to god if I step up, if I change, if I do this or that, if I check off the list, and I'm, you know, if I change myself enough, then I will go to heaven. It's about performance. It's about works. And that's not the gospel of Christ. It's not the gospel. You need to be honest about sin. You need a consistent emphasis that this is a gift of God. The love of God is a gift given by grace, never, ever earned. Number three, this was very important, a reliance on Scripture. Make sure that whoever you listen to, whether it's online or on Sunday morning for that matter, but you don't have to worry about that here. Ryan and I and Matt and Joe, others who teach up here, are going to get you into the book. 
Because if you ever sense that this is a, a day in which we're really about Dale's opinion on this or Ryan's opinion on that, then we've just, we've just stepped uh, away from our commitment to the Word of God. Our goal is to take you into God's Word. That's why I hope that you bring it with you, that you open it, that you read it. You'll learn more that way. Maybe even take a few crazy notes. But the reality is it's got to be Word-based and it's kind of out of the Word and we're just helping you discover the truth of God. Not the truth of Dale. Not the opinions of Dale. It's not about human opinion. It's about the Word of God. Um, I uh, had the privilege this past week to spend a few days in Minneapolis, Minnesota, meeting with our mission organization that we work with here at at Seacoast and uh, to do some strategy planning, get some training, learn a lot of good stuff. Um, But in in the midst of coming home, Uh, Becky wasn't able to pick me up at the airport. She had another function to go to that I was going to join her at. And the bottom line is, I said, don't worry about it, honey. I'll just do the Uber thing. Now, I like Uber. I like Uber because I like meeting Uber drivers. They're always more interesting than taxi drivers and a whole lot better than shuttle drivers. So the bottom line is, I I have a whole list of Uber drivers that I meet. And and, and this one fascinated me. Uh, this young man from somewhere in the Middle East picked me up, and I could tell from his accent he didn't grow up in Southern California. He didn't even have a strange accent like West Virginian, my first language. I've had, you know I'm bilingual. I speak West Virginian and Californian. But uh, so, so we're driving up the five, and, and, uh, and I, I just kind of like to ask questions. I say, you know, uh, my guess is you didn't grow up in Southern California. I said, you know, do you mind telling me a little bit about your journey, your story? How'd you get here? And he says, oh, he says, I'm so thankful to be here. He says, uh, I've been here four years. Uh, myself and my family, we were given visas to come to the U.S. Uh, uh, by, the, by the U.S. government because of the help we gave them in Iraq. I said, really? So you're from Iraq? He says, yes, I'm from a small village right outside of Mosul. Wow. My mind starts turning, you know. And I said, man, you're glad you're here. He says, oh, we're one of the lucky ones that got out before ISIS. He says, because as Christians, we were in their target. And, uh, and I notice a cross dangling from his mirror in his car. I says, so tell me a little bit about your faith. He says, well, he says, uh, he says, what are you? He says, are you Catholic or Protestant? And I said, well, I'm kind of more the Protestant side of things. But I said, but mostly I just really believe the Bible and really believe in following the grace of God and Jesus. And he says, well, we are Chaldean Christians. We go back before any of you. <laughs> Which is true, by the way, okay? He says, yeah. He says, I'm a Chaldean Christian. And, and uh, he said, but uh, he said... Um, I'm so glad that we got out. So glad we got out. I told him, well, I'm glad you got out too. I said, have you found a good church? And he says, uh, oh yeah, we go to a Chaldean church in El Cajon. And uh, he starts telling me about his church. And I said, that's, that's great. And he said, but you know, I really like to listen to you Protestants better. <laughs> I said, really? I said, why do you like to listen to us Protestants? He said, and this is exactly what he said. He says, because you do a better job of teaching me the book. You do a better job teaching me the book. He says, we have our rituals, and I've grown up a Chaldean, but, but we don't really talk about the book very much. 
And when I listen to Protestant teachers on the radio or attend their church, wow, you, I'm learning so much more about the book. And, and that's, it's not to be overlooked that there are many, many churches that do not really teach the book. Now they'll talk about God and they'll wax eloquent with great little sermons and ideas, but make sure whoever you're listening to needs to be forcing your nose into the book so you know how to open it up, read it, study it on your own, listen to it. Let God speak to you through His Word. It's reliance upon Scripture, not just the opinion of man. So as you think today about Uber, pray for my new friend. Pray for my friend. The fourth thing, though, is the centrality of the cross. This passage, Paul says in verse 17 and 18, For I tell you with weeping. I mean, he's not angry. He's, he's brokenhearted. I tell you with weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. That these people are are, are actually end up being enemies of the cross. Now, why would he say that whenever they profess to be Christians? Because I think in this passage in particular, he's not talking about people that hate Christianity. He's talking about people that are, that, are, that are false teachers within Christianity. And what he's saying is they actually become enemies of the cross. And I think part of that is the, is the emphasis. For example, if you look at, write this reference down, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, I like Galatians 2, 20 and uh, 21. And uh, let, me, let me just read it to you. Uh, Galatians 2, 20 and 21 says this. Paul says, For I have been crucified with Christ. I am no longer I, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me died for me in my place on the cross. And then he says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, through obeying the law, then Christ died needlessly. See, I think that's what he's getting at. He's saying that if you buy into the idea that, that you on your own, uh, that Christianity is all about you making yourself righteous before God, by living a better life. If that's how it works, then Christ died needlessly. Jesus didn't need to die on a cross. He just needed to come and do some cool teaching and then zap up to heaven. You've eliminated the need of the, what Christ really did on the cross when He died for your sin and my sin and took our place. So make sure that the cross and the work of the cross is indeed central. And to be honest, in many American churches even, uh, you know, I don't say this with any anger or pride on my part at all. I say it with weeping that there are many churches that meet every Sunday and sing the same songs and, 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 and don't really ground it in the cross. So make sure whatever you're listening to online or whatever you're listening to as you get your favorite sermons downloaded or whatever, honesty about sin, emphasis on grace, reliance on Scripture, and the centrality that Christ on the cross accomplished. It is finished. He gives us our forgiveness, but He also sets us free from sin with the power of the cross and the presence of His Spirit to follow Him and really be changed. And I think as Paul said, you know, if that's not true, then Christ died needlessly. It was just the execution of a 
radical religious zealot. Jesus was not just a religious zealot. He's the Savior. So number one, be careful who you follow. What he's warning is, back then and today, there's a lot of crazy things out there. So how do you spot them? Well, number two, beware of friends of the faith who actually are enemies of the cross. Now, what I mean by enemies of the cross, he actually gives us a five-fold checklist to just be aware of. Look at it. They're right in the text. I love it when God gives me the wisdom. Here we go. They're right in the text, beginning in verse 18. These enemies of the cross, he says, number, in verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their appetite, their glory is actually in their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. Now, let me back up and talk about those. Number one, their number is many, he says. So this is not the rare exception. This is actually the norm. So we should be aware that back then, and even today, I would say that the norm is you need to be aware because there are many, many false religions and false philosophies out there, and they're not all true. So beware that they are many. One of the most common concepts underlying the teaching, preaching, and, and, and the life of many U.S. churches is a common view called universalism. What does universalism teach? It teaches that, you know, in the end, God is love. All religions are pretty much equal, and they all lead to heaven. And, and that is the philosophy of the typical American. If you really drill down, that's common. And to be blunt, it is in churches as well. So be on the guard against universalism. Jesus did not teach it. And the scriptures don't proclaim it as we will see in this very passage. All roads don't lead to heaven. They really don't. Because man has sinned. It goes back to that list I gave you before. If you're honest about sin, you realize that sin just can't be ignored. God had to deal with it. And he dealt with it by really, truing, truly paying the price for our sin. That's the good news. That's the essence of the gospel. Number two, he says their God is their appetite. And this one is kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? What's it mean? They just like to eat all the time? I don't think so. What he's saying is what they really worship is having their appetites met. Now, when you think of earthly appetites, because later he says he set their mind on earthly things, what are the main earthly appetites that people want from God? What would you think of? Talk to me. Prosperity, money, fame, <clears throat> success, power, huh? health. Yeah, if you wanted to summarize all those, they're actually the major essence of what's called today the prosperity gospel. It's actually the nickname for it. And the prosperity gospel is taught in thousands of churches today as we meet. I guarantee you, when I travel in Africa, it's one of the number one false gospels on the continent. It really is alive and well in Africa. And the prosperity gospel has been imported from the West, mostly from America, and it basically goes like this. If you give to God, if you bless God, which means if you send me a check, then God will bless you. If you give to God, you sacrifice for God, you, you're generous with God, then God will be generous with you. He will give you health and wealth. 
He'll increase your health and He'll increase your wealth. And you can know that as a follower of Jesus, you're not going to suffer. You're going to have health and wealth. It's the prosperity gospel. And it's based on some very subtle theology that is incorrect. Their God is their appetite. One of the signs of, of false teaching you need to run from is when it promises you that if you just follow Christ, you're going to be healthier and wealthier. The fact of the matter is you follow Christ. I know many people who have followed Jesus Christ right to their death. And they didn't get well. And they prayed. Christians experience about the same rate of, 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 of non-caused, in other words, random disease and death as anywhere else. And God has chosen for this period of life to allow us to suffer at times. Suffering is part of the Christian life. Sometimes Christians have to follow Christ in poverty. The Apostle Paul later in this book will say, I have learned the secret of being content with in poverty or to be content with abundance. At times you'll have poverty, at times you'll have abundance. That's part of trusting God. And that's the Christian life. That's the true gospel. It doesn't promise health and wealth. Just last night, uh, Becky and I had a chance to attend an Angels game up, uh, up at Angel Stadium. Now, I'm a Padre fan. Go Padres. Boy, I don't, am I the only one in the room? Man, you guys need to learn to be fans. But I got an Angels hat. The Angels hat that I wore last night was given to me. It was given to me in 1996 at my first Angel game, opening day, Angel Stadium, by Brad Condon. Brad has lifelong season tickets three rows behind the Angels' dugout. Okay? He goes to spring training. And he's not a player. <clears throat> but a year ago, last night, Becky and I, with 24 other friends of Brad's, watched the game, not from his seats but from a, a suite with all the food you could eat, all the drink you could drink in a suite watching the game together to celebrate the fact that exactly one year earlier, Brad was laying in a hospital at USC Medical Center so close to death you wouldn't even recognize him. In fact, literally, I FaceTimed to pray with him when his family called me. His heart was failing, his liver was failing, his organs were shutting down through this weird disease that had taken over. And the bottom line is, he needed not one but a double transplant of his heart and kidney, um, maybe heart and liver, I can't remember, two of the ones you cannot do without. He needed them both, he needed them both at the same time, and you couldn't do one and then the other. And he was so close to death that they wasn't sure he would even survive getting one. And uh, when I FaceTimed with Brad, I told Becky, I don't even recognize him. He looked like someone out of the Holocaust. One year ago, today, one year ago yesterday, he got the call that through a tragedy that happened across the border in Mexico, that a young man was shot, lost his life, decided to donate his organs. They had him on life support. Brad got 
two major organs from one young man survived the surgery and we celebrated. He celebrated the grace of God and the goodness of God. So yeah, God does answer prayer. God does heal. God does that sometimes. But for every Brad, I could also tell you about Ro, um, about uh, Roselva Sattler, the mother of my daughter's best friend, who at the age of 43 with three beautiful kids at home went in for minor routine, what was supposed to be a relatively routine surgery, and never woke up. And to this day, the anesthesiologist, who's a friend of mine, does not know why. But for some reason, her vitals went down, and they did everything by the book, and they could not revive her. And she donated 21 organs to other people. It's not a bad idea, by the way. So what I'm saying is this. Brad Roselva. Two of my friends. One ends up being an organ donor at age 43, while the other one, by the grace of God, receives what he needs to live. Did God love one more than the other? I don't think so. See, suffering is part of the Christian life, and if you're not being taught that by who you listen to, you're not listening to the real gospel. And you're setting yourself up to be really ticked off at God someday when you need his help. And he doesn't seem to help you at the time and the way that you ask. So be ready for that, okay? Don't follow people whose God is their appetite. They just want something from God if they're going to serve him. Number three, this is a tough one. He says, and their glory is in their shame. Their glory is in their shame. Probably the best way to paraphrase this, if you study it, is they glory or they take, they take joy, they praise things that are actually shameful. That they actually praise things that are shameful. Probably the best cross-reference to this that I thought of was the way our culture often responds to, uh, to areas like sexuality, for example. If you go to Romans chapter 1, let me just uh, flip you back to Romans 1 if you put your finger, keep your finger in Philippians, but if you go to Romans 1, it talks about how cultures go into decay, and it's talking about the Roman culture, which was dominating the very world that Philippians is written to. And when it describes it in Romans 1, it talks, I don't have time to do a whole sermon on Romans 1, but we actually did a four-part series on this passage here at Seacoast called the, uh, the Great Exchange, I think was the title. If not, go online and look, look through the past sermon series. You'll find four weeks on Romans 1. So if you want to go deeper on what I'm about to teach you in the next three minutes, go there. Romans 1 talks about how the gospel is the power of God. Verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And then he begins to describe this Greek culture. And, he, and Greek and Roman culture. And what he does in verse 18 and 19, he talks about how they, how they exchanged the worship of God for the worship of creation. They worship creation instead of the creator. Does it sound like our culture? Sure. 
It says in verse uh, 21, For even though they knew about God, they knew God, they saw Him in creation, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in speculations. Wow, maybe it's this way. No, I think it's this way. Everyone's got an opinion about God. So they became futile in speculating about God. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the, for the, for the image of corruptible man and animals and things like that. So the first thing that happens is a culture begins to say, you know something, maybe God isn't our creator that we're responsible to. Maybe we are God. Maybe we are the highest life form on the planet. Number two, it says, And therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Uh, you know, and, and, and it talks about sexual immorality. And it says a culture then begins to, to think differently about sexual immorality. They begin to engage in all kinds of sexual immorality because uh, instead of purity as a gift from God, because sex, by the way, is one of God's greatest ideas. Do I have an Amen. Thank you. All the men spoke up. The women were quiet. That scares me. Hopefully that improves. Yeah, it's an amen on that. It's God's idea. God created Adam and he said, this guy needs, he's in trouble. He needs help. So he created woman to be the perfect helper for him, to, to compliment him, to, you know, and, and thank God. He created a woman and Adam took one look at her and he went, woohoo! That's in the Hebrew text. If you study it in Hebrew, it says, wow, she is like me, but different. <laughs> and he liked the differences. And uh, so God, God created that. But it says that they exchange purity for impurity. That's the next thing a culture does. And we saw that uh, back as long as the 60s in our American culture, there was this free love movement. Remember that? Some of you that are old enough like me to remember that. The rest of you, read about it in the history books. It's right after the assassination of Lincoln. You know, there's the, there's the, there's the, there's the, there's the free love movement. Yeah, because love isn't something sacred and pure to be enjoyed in the intimacy of marriage between a man and a woman that says, you know, I will never leave you. We, we lose that and we just make it like a little relational snack. Sex begins to become just a fun little joyful thing to do. Don't buy that. That's a lie. It's a very precious part of who you are. God created it. God gave it to you. But the culture moves away from God. They begin to compromise on their sexual uh, purity. And then if the culture continues to move away from God, this is what it says. Verse 24, Therefore... God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that in their bodies they were dishonored. Verse 26, therefore, God gave them over to degrading passions. It went from passions to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. Men and women, I can't, I can't find a more clear description of uh, homosexual relationships than this. And, and don't believe any teacher that tells you 
Well, if you read it in Greek, it doesn't mean what it says in English. You read it in Greek, it says the same thing even more clearly. And it's, it's just, it's, it's a part of culture. And, and, um, and then it ends up by kind of addressing the fact that the culture takes one step further and it says this, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So now people get really confused. And it, and it lists all kinds of sins. Wickedness, greediness, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, being gossipers, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. You get, you know, you can't get evil enough, so you invent new forms of evil. Disobedience to parents without understanding, unloving, unmerciful. In fact, do you find yourself on that list? We're all on that list. So this passage is not just about sexual immorality or homosexual immorality. It's about that and a whole lot more that is the tendency of the culture to embrace sin. And here's the key phrase. It ends with this phrase. Don't miss this. It says, and although they know the ordinance of God that is in their conscience, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. See, I really, I wanted to pause on this for a little bit because I think when this phrase says they glory in shameful things, they don't just do shameful things, they glory in them. They brag about them. They, woohoo! It's, it's, isn't it great that we do these things? So a culture moves from practicing sin, which it's always done, to, uh, to saying, okay, it, we'll tolerate sin, to not just tolerating sin, but it actually officially endorses sinful lifestyles. That is the America we live in today. It is the Romanesque, Romanesque America. It is, it is like the same culture the Philippians were in. So... The point is, anytime a culture embraces sin, glories in it, it just is a sign that we've moved further and further as a culture away from God. Now, I couldn't help but bring this up because that's what the phrase is teaching, and, and the illustration is right in front of us. This very week in San Diego and many other cities is Gay Pride Week. Unless you think that um, Dale is homophobic, let me, let me assure you, uh, I have no fear. I have, I have friends, I have relatives who live gay lifestyles. And most of you in this room know someone. Uh, I'm not homophobic. I do not fear my friends who choose a different approach to life, um, who, who have a who feel they have a different orientation. I, but by approving and endorsing something that God says is not His design, it's not natural. Approving any sin that is not God's design is, um, it's not helpful. It's not love. Because love speaks truth, 
Love tries to help one another. I need help with my sexual sins. And all of us do. As Rosaria Butterfield said once in her book, as a former radical lesbian, uh, Rosaria said, we're all born with sin. We're all born with sinful inclinations. And probably the sexuality part of all of us, all of us have different struggles, with different, different types of struggles with sexual sin. So I'm certainly not intending to isolate uh, the homosexual issue. In fact, one reason the church fails when they do that is we have ignored so much heterosexual sin that we have no credibility to often speak to the issue of homosexuality. So I'm saying that, let's just get back to Romans 1. Romans 1 says first, deal with heterosexual sin because that dishonors God too. And it's not good for you. It's not healthy. You know, just decide to move in and live together, which is the norm in today's young adult culture. Or just to use sex as just kind of a fun part of the relationship with no commitment. Um, it's, it's not healthy. In fact, there's even research done by places like Harvard and, and, and the University of Chicago that actually document the fact that you actually increase, uh, living together before you're married actually increases your likelihood of divorce. It doesn't lower it, it increases it. Now, I'm talking to a lot of very touchy issues this morning, but here's what I want to bring you back to. The reason Paul says what he says in Romans 1 and the reason he says what he says in Philippians is because God loves us and he wants us to be people of the word who, who develop our approach to life from God's truth delivered in love by a Savior who died for you. That's what he wants us to do. So it's not about being anti-gay or anti-sexual freedom or anti-anything. It's about being pro for the gospel and pro for Jesus Christ. Whereas one friend of mine said this, my goal is not for my gay friend to be converted from, from, from their sexuality. It's that they be converted to Jesus. Another way to say it is this, my goal is not to bring them to become heterosexual, it's to bring them to Jesus. Because when we're brought to Jesus and to the grace of God and the power of the gospel, then I believe all of us, beginning with Dale, have hope to change. That's the goal. So that's not being haters, that's actually love. So there, beware of these teachings out there in our culture. Enemies of the cross, their number is many, their God is their appetite, their glory is in things that are actually shameful. Number four, their minds are set on earthly things. All the focus is in, I want pleasure now. I want wealth now. I want health now. That's their focus. But then it says their end is destruction. This word for destruction doesn't mean to be annihilated and go out of existence. It's actually the word that's translated ruin or damnation. This is talking about eternal punishment. This is talking about hell. That, yeah, as fun as it is to talk about the love of God, but we learn that no, God is love, but he's also just and holy. Well, guess what? God also loves to offer us heaven but it's because he wants to rescue us from a place called hell of eternal punishment. And I don't like to bring it up, but it's real. And if I don't bring it up, you're going to live in a, in a state of real confusion and deception. 
And that's why here at Seacoast we want to be teachers of truth with love, with grace, because that's what God calls us to. And then the last section, which I'll just hit very briefly, ends on this incredible up note. Look at verse 20. He says, for by grace, why do we want to reject the thinking of of our world and not live according to their false teaching? It's because our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 20. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. And he gets excited. The Lord Jesus Christ. He names Jesus by his long name. When I get called by my long name, Heber and Dale Burke, what's that mean? I'm in trouble. This is not Jesus being in trouble. It's him being celebrated. Man, we got the real Jesus. In other words, you are a now citizen of heaven, but you have a wow Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord, Master God. He is Jesus, the man Savior, resurrected, alive today. And He is our Christ, our Messiah. So follow Him, not the false teaching of the world. That's the big idea of the morning. And then if you do that, you have a wonder-filled eternity in a glorified, resurrected body, in a new heaven and a new earth. He says we are citizens of heaven, so live like it. Don't live like citizens of our culture. Be different and invite people to know the one who has made everything different. Everything. Who defines life. Who defines morality. Who defines heaven. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the truth that you give us from your word. Thank you so much for the fact that you, uh, you call us to love our culture, to love those who are different than us, even who disagree with us, even to love those who may hate us at times, but to love them in the name of Christ, but yet to model a different way. May we follow the way of your gospel, of your good news, May we stand out as salt and light in a world that is desperate for it. In Christ's name, amen.